It's Monday, July 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's been about 10 days since the Supreme Court issued the third of its important rulings, session-ending rulings about affirmative action, student debt, and the right of a vendor to deny expressive services. I wouldn't say they were actually the biggest decisions, but they were big and they certainly got lumped together in the argument that the Supreme Court didn't just get some things wrong, just didn't err in the eyes of me, the person making the argument, or me, actual me, Mike Pesca, but that the Supreme Court is illegitimate, illegitimate. Tear it all down. The institution is illegitimate. Here is Nevada Democrat Representative Stephen Horsford, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Well, first and foremost, is it's the very legitimacy of several of the justices who don't even deserve to be on the court today. Called into question by Representative Stephen Horsford and others, many others, a crisis of illegitimacy. 10 days old, let's see how the Sunday shows would cover this crisis of illegitimacy. Nothing. They didn't do any content on it. That was last week's story, the crisis in one of the three branches of government. Yesterday, they talked about the Iowa caucuses being six months and one week away. Crisis of illegitimacy. What is the difference between a bunch of rulings you don't like and a bunch of rulings you do but ignore or weren't told about? What's the difference between that and the crisis of illegitimacy? I think it's that with rulings you don't like or in some cases that I don't like, those don't sound quite as important when you say them. Rulings I don't like. Eh, kind of stinks, but crisis of illegitimacy. Bum, bum, bum. 24-point gothic type, at least. Crisis of illegitimacy. That is rousing, but not so rousing as to sustain a conversation over the course of two summer weekends. In the upcoming days, I will be talking a little bit more about the coverage of the affirmative action ruling. But before then, I just wanted to point out a trope that I noticed about the Supreme Court, an off-repeated idea, before there was even this idea of the crisis of illegitimacy, is that, you know, we as Americans... We kind of stink. We can't even name the justices. Now, never mind that most Americans have no idea who the justices are. Two-thirds can't even name a single justice. Uh, I can't even name the one that just died. I honestly couldn't tell you any of their no, names. I, I can't um, even tell I don't know any. I don't either. <laughs> yeah, the only name of a judge I know is Judge Judy. Doesn't matter. That's Jad Abumrad setting up his More Perfect Union podcast in 2016. The Supreme Court, shadowy and unknown. Google it now. Name Supreme Court justices. You'll see all the polls. We can't do it. But here, I was listening over the weekend to the excellent The Rest is Politics podcast. Here is a view from Britannia, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. Supreme Court. I mean, you're in America. Presumably it's a huge story there, isn't it? It's completely amazing. And it's. It, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that in a way that's very difficult for British listeners to understand is that Supreme Court justices are almost household names, certainly for readers of the New York Times. You know, people write whole biographies of Supreme Court justices. You know, there's a great American tradition. If you go to a certain kind of American home, they have big hardback biographies of presidents and Supreme Court justices kind of lining their walls. And you, you can see that these figures on this current court are almost household names. So it is amazing that Americans are so ignorant about the court, while the court is also something to behold insofar as we as Americans are so plugged into the court. It's a court that is courting a crisis of illegitimacy, but the sort of crisis that doesn't even get mentioned on the most important discussion shows nine days hence. Like so much in American life, 
We choose our information silos, our reality vortexes, vortices. There's little incentive to keep complaints in perspective when complaints are sure to land on the ears of the already convinced. 20, 30 years ago, there'd be prominent newspapers in town and almost everyone would read the newspapers. And if the editors of those newspapers who chose what opinions were aired in those newspapers, if they went to time and time again to write op-eds or just to be quoted as learned people, people who would voice opinions that would strike the readers of those newspapers as bizarre or off the wall or just not describing reality, it would redound to the diminishment of the reputation of the newspapers. Because most of the people in town, first of all, some were Democrats, some were Republicans, but the distance between Democrat and Republican wasn't so vast. So you might say something that could offend a businessman who was a Republican and a leader of the town and a member of the Chamber of Congress. You might say something that would offend, you know, an activist on the school board. But if you kept doing that, you would lose readership and you cared because the readership was more or less representative of the community, which was more or less representative of America. That's gone. That's almost all gone. Now it is more about just really making the maximalist claims Every incentive aligns to do that. There is nothing to pull us back from overstating everything that was just a thing that I didn't like happening. Now it is all a crisis, an institutional calamity, or a catastrophe about to happen. That is at least my analysis. A crisis of overcatastrophization, or maybe in the, the closed ecosystem that is the gist just saying so that we have a crisis of overcatastrophization. That that is the sort of thing that gets little dissent. On the show today, speaking of catastrophes, war in Ukraine, actual catastrophes, war crimes not good, cluster munitions. Are they war crimes? Just being and existing and being used to repel the Russians? Eh, maybe I'm gonna call that into question. But first, Mark Baker is a travel writer, a journalist, and the unwitting target of communist operatives. At least he was while living and working in Prague, Czechoslovakia, in the months leading up to the fall of the Soviet Union. And that is a fact that he was under surveillance. That is a fact he only recently learned. And he's documenting his experience in an article titled The Interfile in Transitions Magazine. Mark Interbaker, up next. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, the secrets held within did not come down with it. Though in different countries, in later years, more secrets came out. Who was surveilled and how? Many Western journalists found they had files. A few of them found that they were active recruits. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll find that the recruitment was successful. My next guest, Mark Baker, was codenamed Inter by the Czechoslovakian Secret Service. I don't want to say Czech because that's what the country became, but the Czechoslovakian Secret Service, the STB. And he recently found out that he had an entire dossier. There was an entire plan to recruit him while he was working behind the Iron Curtain as a journalist. Uh, he recounts this in a new work available online called Inter. Mark slash Inter, welcome to The Gist. Hey, thank you. Who, who is here, Mark or Inter? Oh, who knows? <laughs> Such a shadowy figure looms b before me. What were you doing in the Czech Republic behind the Iron Curtain in the 80s? Yes. Uh, what were you in, doing there? Wait, I got the lamp. I'm shining it in your face. What were you yes, doing? Yes, yes. Good question. 
Um, well, it depends on who you ask, but the real story is that I was working as a journalist. Uh, I had to take, I would done the international affairs program at Columbia, and then I graduated in 1986 and took a job as a journalist in Vienna for a company called Business International. And our job was to write about economic and sometimes political stories from behind the Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc. And then when I got there uh, to Vienna, they made me the Czechoslovak expert for the office. Each one of us had a, a different country. Uh, for me, that was a bit of a stretch because I did not speak Czech at the time. And uh, I didn't really know that much about the country. Uh, and, you know, maybe it was a little bit of my naivete that uh, that they played upon. Uh, who knows? But, uh, you know, of course, I had to ramp up pretty quick to get to know that country. Were you living in Prague or Austria at the time? Yeah, we were all based in Vienna. Our office was in Vienna and all of us were there. It was almost impossible to maintain a full residency uh, in that part, you know, behind the Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc at that time. So the Czech Secret Service, and I call it SDB, but what's STB, but what's the full name? Well, you could just call it the Czech uh, Security Services Police or the Czech Secret Service, something like that. Right. They believe that your publication either was or very well might have been a CIA front, but you were filing, they were publishing, you met uh, them, you, you met your bosses, yes. they did that background in journalism. It wasn't a CIA front, was no. it? No, no, no. Would you tell uh, me if it were? <laughs> How would you say it if it were? <laughs> yeah, 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 good question. Um, you know, the fact is that they were never sure. If you were going to devise a CIA front operation, you would probably call it Business International and put it in Vienna and hire like eight to 10 guys from the UK or the US and uh, give them all specializations in that part of Europe and send them off on so-called reporting trips. But, you know, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we were never part of any CIA operation. I certainly was not. Right. What about you? What about you might have been attractive as a potential agent or sleeper cell? You know, uh, you know, I don't know. That That's the kind of the really the galling thing is when I was traveling across the Iron Curtain in, you know, in Prague or Brno or even some of the other countries. I went to Poland and Romania, uh, East Germany. Of course, I realized that I might have been being watched, surveilled. You know, they didn't know what we were doing there. And it would be only, you know, prudent on their part to to watch us. But what I found out when I when I discovered my file is that they weren't just watching me. They had concocted an entire plot to try to recruit me as a Czechoslovak agent. I mean, it was quite involved, you know, page after page of how we're going to do it, what we're going to do. Uh, when you say what would um, what would have attracted me, you know, there's nothing what would have attracted them to me. There's really nothing in the files that really lets me know that information. You know, they were they were very interested in, you know, my personality you know, any weaknesses or character flaws, you know, that they, they, they think I might have. But there was really nothing about my politics in the file or nothing about my belief system, my morality, to think that I could be turned as an agent. Right. And there is a line in there essentially saying he has an eye for the ladies, but they don't have an eye for him back. <laughs> he doesn't get many. It's actually right word for word, you know, he has an eye for attractive women, but he doesn't get many. So... <laughs> I think that's putting you in uh, the vast majority or 90% of American <laughs> men behind the Iron Curtain at the time. Now I realized when I read that, that they must, I don't know, either they had a sense of humor, or they called it as they saw it. I, I have no idea what was going on there. But the interesting thing about that line is that they clearly fixated on that part is that that was how they were going to try to, you know, to turn me. In the 80s, when you were operating behind, when you were pursuing journalism uh, in that part of the world, were there any 
occurrences where you said, that's kind of fishy. I wonder if either I'm being surveilled or I oh, wonder yeah. if that person I dealt with isn't on the up and up. Go ahead. Yes, tell me. yes, yes. Um, you know, when I would go up on the train from uh, from Vienna to Prague, uh, the train, of course, would stop at the Czechoslovak border for a long uh, border inspection. You know, the whole nine yards with, you know, with the border police and the dogs and all that stuff. And then once the train would start up again towards Prague on the Czechoslovak side, invariably, the train would be almost empty. You know, everybody had gotten out by then. Of course, I was going up to Prague, so I'd still be on the train. But almost invariably, an attractive woman would be walking down the corridor, would slide the corridor door open, would ask me very politely if the seat across from me was taken. And, uh, of course, the entire train was almost empty, so I would say, you know, please join me. And, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes into the ride, she would uh, look at me and she would say, do you speak English? you know, blah, blah, blah. And we would just talk the whole way up, you know, and I, and I thought was, you know, I always thought that this was just, you know, people's interest in foreigners or my own personal charm or something like that. But it only came later, came to realize that that person's job was to simply watch me from the border until I could get to another handler in Prague, where she could turn me off, turn me over to another person. So that happened more than once. So when it happens more than once, you start to see a pattern. Yeah. And so at the time, were you saying, wait a minute, demographically, this is quite improbable? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I was. And so how did it affect what you would say or how you conducted yourself? Well, you know, um, look, uh, you know, we, we all knew that there was going to be surveillance. So we all knew that we had to be basically on our best behavior. And I used these reporting trips seriously as reporting trips. You know, I mean, I wasn't there to fool around or something, you know, of course, go down to the lounge and have an, a drink or something. Um, you know, the hotels in Prague were filled with uh, attractive single women. You know, uh, you could easily make the leap that they were all basically working for the regime or perhaps working for themselves as prostitutes. I mean, there was nothing to do. So I might go into the bar and, and chat or something like that. But, you know, no, I, I was really aware of the risks and on my best behavior as a journalist when I was there. But here's the thing, and you refer to this in your uh, online account of what happened right. with Inter. What compromise were they hoping to develop? Yeah. You weren't married. Yeah, you had an on-again, off-again girlfriend. Yeah, uh, I know, I it know. wasn't 1954. You no. weren't gay. Like, what's no. so... No. What was so... No. You know, how, what could they hold over you if you indeed snogged with a Czech girl? I think... Uh, I had, um, I've gotten, I've asked this question to people in the know in Prague now, people who study this and ask them, what were they trying to do, basically, you know, because it would have embarrassed me a lot with my job. It would have been a very uncomfortable conversation with my boss, it would have been an even more uncomfortable conversation with my on again, off again girlfriend right. at the time. But what, what people have told me in Prague is that they probably weren't going to ask for very much from me. You know, they were going to ask maybe what our company was doing in Vienna, or perhaps they were going to say, don't you know anybody at the U.S. embassy in Vienna? And couldn't you like introduce us further? So maybe they were trying to use, you know, this compromise as a way to get relatively little out of me. And so that I might make the calculation like, look, I just don't want the embarrassment of it. So I'm going to go along with the game. In terms of brutality, reach, effectiveness, how did the Czechoslovakian Secret Service compare to the Stasi or the KGB or other secret services behind the Iron Curtains? I think I think the Romanians were particularly brutal too. Yeah, I think you can't not you cannot put it in the same league as the Securitate in Romania. 
uh, it was very wi widespread. It, uh, there were a lot of informants and people on the ground. Uh, by the time kind of I rolled into town by the mid 1980s, uh, real brutality, beating up people, that kind of thing was kind of almost not done. You know, what you would be done, what would happen to you is that you would probably be um, expelled from the country or barred from entering the country again, or maybe given a talking to, you know, downtown or something like that. But it's very unlikely that even if you had been caught doing something like that, that you would have gotten physically harmed. At the time, I mean, uh, as you write about, the day the Iron Curtain fell, first of all, you didn't expect it, but that was also a day where the Secret Service was running uh, a honeypot operation, yes. which never yes. came to fruition yes. against you. Yes. But did you sense that things were, I mean, Gorbachev was there, there was glasnost and uh, openness and uh, all these reforms. Did you feel that things were about to shake free? It's a great Great question. Um, you know, it was already shaking free in countries like Poland and Hungary. They were already moving very quickly to sideline the communist government. They were reforming very quickly. But in the other camp, the hardline camp, you had Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Romania, and Bulgaria. And we really did not know, even as late as November, what was going to happen in these countries, because it seemed really inconceivable that the governments would, would relinquish power without a fight. Yeah. And that's what everybody was worried about. As you were in Prague, so the most metropolitan city in Prague, in the late 80s, did you say to yourself, you know, this is a country with a more or less Western-facing DNA. If communism were to fall, I could see this country being aligned with Western Europe. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, that was the big fear, you know, obvi you know obviously, that these countries' nat national and natural affinities were with the West. So given a chance, they would go that direction. But you have to keep in mind that even in, in the 1980s, Czechoslovakia had a very conservative, very um, Soviet Union friendly regime in place. So it was really, you know, an unknown, I think, what, how it would shake out. If we survey the former Soviet states today, and this runs a little afield of you being an agent, but since you have some expertise there, does it surprise you, and things may have changed a little bit with the war and Poland's objection to Russia as a galvanizing force, but does it surprise you that the Czech Republic now is really Western-facing, whereas Poland and Hungary are much, much less so? Uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, I think you have to see this in terms of the immigration debate. You know, yeah. um, I think the Syrian civil war and the flood of uh, refugees into Europe was a transformative event in Eastern and Central Europe for Europe as a whole in terms of the politics. And that's where we get this latest crop of, let's say, populist leaders in Eastern and Central Europe. And the, and Czech, and the Czech Republic is not immune from this leadership. We've, we've had our own version of this populism in, you know, recent uh, years. Mm. So how did you find out about the, oh, and let's just establish this. The, um, I, maybe you wouldn't admit this, but I take you at your word. So either you're good at it or you're being honest. No <laughs> recruitment ex, uh, efforts came to fruition. And yes. in fact, right. And in fact, you didn't even know about it for years, but you always suspected as, yeah. like I said in the intro, many journalists who worked in the area did that you must have been under some surveillance. So what efforts did you take to ascertain if that was in fact the fact? You know, um, 
We, we, in our company, like I told you when I was hired, I didn't speak Czech, so we hired a translator for me. Uh, this was a guy named Arnold. He lived in Prague. He was Czech. He was a Sudeten German, actually. You can tell by his first name. And um, he, he told us in his bio that he was a discredited former communist, had sided with reformers, you know, and uh, had been sidelined and didn't have any active, uh, you know, contacts with the communist leadership, but that his English and his German were excellent. So we used him as a translator. I want um, to stop you. Did you believe him or did the company believe him or did you say, well, believe him or not, this is this guy fits our role and you have to be careful with that. Absolutely. OK, yeah. so the latter. I really yeah. needed him for my job, you know, and um, and the company hired him. So who was I to question his credentials? You know, um, so it turns out that in later years, I found out that he was a rather high ranking uh, informant with the STB and it was a shock to me. Um, so, um, I was always careful around Arnold, uh, but, um, you know, we were working for the same company toward what I thought were the same goals. And, um, you know, I'm sure I told him about my private life. I'm sure in our conversations, I would, you know, spill the beans on what the latest office, you know, the latest, uh, office gossip and, and all that stuff. Um, but it turns out that he was one of the main conduits of, uh, of, you know, of, of what the STB ended up finding out about me and why perhaps they decided that they were going to try to recruit me as an agent. Do you feel betrayed by Arnold to this uh, day? I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you know, um, look, it, you know, he was already an older guy by the time he was 60. I was in my 20s, you know, so we weren't really buddies or anything. But, you know, he had a good sense of humor. He was a smart guy. We got along. And um, uh, he passed away in 2001, so he's not around to answer my questions, although I, I have a lot of questions for him. Um, you know, my, my mood about Arnold goes up and down. You know, I mean, he was, he was trying to squirrel away some money for retirement. You know, nothing that he wrote about me in my file was actually that bad, you know, that incriminating. He didn't embellish the facts. At the same time, I mean, you know, he really, you know, he let me down. He let our company down. You know, he... He was the rat. Yeah, but you don't know what they had over him. Yeah, that's very true. It's very, very complex. You know, I mean, it's you, you never really understand the full motivation. Hmm. So how did there were it came in fits, uh, uh, you finding the full information that they had. And for years, right. you thought there was almost none, curiously. Yes. And then the dam broke. How did that yeah. happen? Right. Um, well, you know, I always suspected that I had a file, you know, because I had been traveling in the 1980s as a Western journalist. It would have been very unusual had I not had anything in my in, in there about that, you know. But uh, I over the years, I would make periodic inquiries with the Czechoslovak or Czech authorities and like, do I have a file, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they would always come back to me, Mr. Baker, there's nothing in the file. You know, that means that it never existed or that means that it was lost or destroyed over time. You know, that happens, too. And then uh, during the pandemic, I wrote a book about Czechoslovakia, a little a bit of a personal history book, which was published in Czech language as Čas Promien, the time of changes. It was the period before and after the 1989 anti-communist Velvet Revolution. And, um, you know, I mailed copies of the book to people who had helped me to research the book. And one was an academic researcher at the uh, Institute of Military History in Prague. And, uh, and I sent him off a copy of the book. Thanks very much. And then he sent me an email a few months later, didn't hear anything back from him while I was home and uh, here in, in, in the States. Um, and uh, he wrote uh, in an email, he said, thanks for the book. I enjoyed it. But next time you uh, go back to it, you might want to update a little bit because I found some information about you. 
And uh, all of a sudden, you know, my jaw hit the floor. And then he wrote, he said, um, you actually did have a file. I managed to find it. Your code name was Inter. The plan was to set you up with a Slovak agent, a female agent at Bratislava, and then uh, and then they would use you as a Czechoslovak agent to spy against Americans in Vienna. And my code name, as I said, was Inter. And yeah. I, it was hard to believe. And then he ended the email with like, it was around Christmas time. So he said, have a great Christmas. See you when you come back to Prague. And that was that. So <laughs> I had to hang. So you live in Prague, you write about Prague, yeah. uh, people might, you know, pick up a Lonely Planet guide, find that you wrote it about right. e either Prague or Slovenia. Do, did this affect your, I mean, I assume you have a love of the country and the city. Did this affect yeah. your love of the place? You know, Mike, I was expecting that you would ask me this question because uh, it's one that I've really been thinking about myself a lot. You know, you know, we, when we when we think back on our past, we, we use it to kind of mold an identity of ourselves somehow. Like, this is what I did. This is, you know, what happened. And then when you find out that, you know, that you were being recruited, you know, uh, you know, to work for this uh, agency and something that you had no knowledge of at all, it kind of shakes the core foundation. Like, what do I really know about this place? You know, what do I really know about what I was doing back then? Um, it, it, I, it, it hasn't shaken my love of the country. I still, you know, I still really, really, you know, love and support the place. But it, it gives me a little bit of pause that not that I wasn't aware of everything that was happening back then. It's, it's a funny, it's really a funny feeling. Yeah. So after the Velvet Revolution and after Czech Republic becomes the Czech Republic and opens up, do you find that fewer pretty girls are talking to you on the train? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, actually, that's never happened again since then. Interesting. Funny that you, funny that you would ask that. <laughs> okay, last question. Sure. Major, major important one. The STB carried out long-term spying on Donald Trump because Ivana Trump's father, Milos yes, uh, Zelnicek, was, gave information to them. Right. Uh, at the time this was reported, I don't know, depending on how feverish the swamp was that you were inside, this was very important, not important. What's the context that we should know about the fact that the Czechs were getting some information from his former father-in-law, however good that information was? I think we can assume that there's very little that Donald Trump ever did in Czechoslovakia that was not absolutely known by everyone who had an interest in knowing it. I couldn't tell you what Donald Trump's code name is, yeah. but I can guarantee you that he has one. Mark Baker is a journalist, a travel writer, a Prague resident. He wrote about his time, which he just found out about, uh, as a target of the Czechoslovakian Secret Service in a magazine article called The Interfile from Transitions Magazine. It's also up on his uh, website, markbakerprog.com. Mark, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it.
And now the spiel. The very hard job of President of the United States isn't one I'd wish upon my worst enemy, which might be unfair since my worst enemy is Mike Pence, who is actually running for President of the United States. But putting aside the Mike Pence, Mike Pesca contra tem, it is a hard job. Governing is the art of difficult choices, and man was a difficult choice thrust upon President Biden recently. Here he is admitting to Fareed Zakaria just how difficult the choice was to arm the Ukrainians with cluster munitions. And it was a very difficult decision on my part. Last week, we brought to you the very, very difficult choice Joe Biden faced about whether to pack the Supreme Court. I, Mike Pence enemy Mike Pesca, laid out this difficult binary this way. I said, Biden could pack the court, thereby committing to an act he has always opposed that's politically unpopular, that would blow up in his face and wouldn't even pass. Or he could not pack the court. That was the difficult choice then, the difficult domestic choice. Now, speaking of blowing up in one's face, there is the question of cluster munitions. Not just any old harsh weapon that inflicts damage, which is the point of all weapons, but a potential war crime. Perhaps you read about Jen Psaki, when she was a spokesperson for the administration, called them a war crime. That's how the New York Times reported it. Quote, when five days into the war, Jen Psaki, then the White House press secretary, was asked about the Russian use of unconventional weapons, including cluster munitions, she said, we have seen the reports, if that were true, it would potentially be a war crime. The Nation magazine made the war crime point quite clear by using the phrase war crime quite prominently in a story titled, Cluster bombs are war crime weapons. First graph. Shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when reports circulated regarding the Russian use of cluster bombs, a reporter asked then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the Biden administration's response to an action that was, quote, potentially a war crime. Quote, we have seen the reports, replied Psaki on February 28th, 2022. If that were true, it would potentially be a war crime. I like how the nation included the quote, as if we didn't believe the exact paraphrase, also the headline line, which had the phrase war crime. That was in quotes. That is a headline about a paraphrase of a quote. But here's the thing about the quote. She did say that it could potentially be a war crime. She did say that. But what is the it that could potentially be a war crime? Not simply the use of cluster munitions, but how they were being used. I want you to listen to the full Q&A, especially pay attention to the Q. There are reports of illegal cluster bombs and vacuum bombs being used by the Russians. Uh, If that's true, what is the next step of this administration? And is there a red line for how much violence uh, will be tolerated against civilians in this manner that's illegal and potentially a war crime? It is. It would be. I don't have any confirmation of that. We have seen the reports. Uh, if if that were true, it would potentially be a war crime. Obviously, there are a range of international fora that would assess that. Um, so certainly, we would look to that to be a part of that conversation. The illegality would be using cluster bombs against civilians. That's quite important. It would be Russia illegally invading Ukraine to use cluster bombs against civilians. And that might be a war crime. All of that, the invasion, the weapons, might be a war crime because all of it is a violation of international law. But Ukraine would be using these munitions against invaders. And that would not be a war crime. It would not be used 
against civilians, which is the purpose of Russia using these weapons this way in its illegal invasion. You might have also heard that over 100 countries are signatories to the Convention on Cluster Munitions, but the United States is not one of those countries. Part of not signing a treaty is not being beholden to that treaty. I'd say it's a big part. Otherwise, the Senate wouldn't have to debate and ratify and reject or accept treaties. We would just let Seychelles, Vatican City, Japan, Ireland, Lesotho, and 100 other countries sign it and say, now it's a treaty. But this treaty is not our treaty. It seems a rather rudimentary point, but countries that are not signatories to treaties do not, by their own laws, have to abide by the treaties. By the way, Russia is not a signatory. Ukraine's not a signatory. None of the participants involved signed the treaty. Countries like Spain, the UK, and Canada have criticized the U.S. giving cluster bombs to Russia, which is entirely appropriate since they signed the treaty against using cluster bombs. They'd be hypocrites not to. Here is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan laying out this administration, the U.S. non-treaty signing administration's rationale. We recognize that cluster munitions create a risk of civilian harm from unexploded ordnance. This is why we've the defer- deferred the decision for as long as we could. But there is also a massive risk of civilian harm if Russian troops and tanks roll over Ukrainian positions and take more Ukrainian territory and subjugate more Ukrainian civilians because Ukraine does not have enough artillery. That is intolerable to us. I'm glad that liberal outlets that are moral beacons like the nation, I'm glad that liberal legislators like Barbara Lee are making their case against it. We should not be blasé about using such weapons. Their droplets can and do explode long after a war is over and can and do hurt civilians. But I ask you, what if the plot of Red Dawn were real and the U.S. were invaded by Cubans and Russians? Okay, this was back in 1985, maybe seemed more plausible then. Would you deprive the Wolverines, Wolverines, of cluster bombs? Would you tell them if they didn't have access to other shells? No, 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 no. Don't use the cluster bombs to target the Russians and the Cubans because years later, your descendants, should you be so fortunate as to win the war, might pick up a droplet and explode themselves. You would not say that. You would, if you were rational, say, yeah, first you got to win the war. First you got to repel the invaders. And if someone else said, oh, but wait, Other ragtag groups of high school students from other places, for instance, say the Farmingdale Dalers or the Oceanside Sailors on Long Island or the Teaneck Highwaymen in New Jersey or the Freeport, Illinois Pretzels, they vowed, in fact, they had a treaty that said were they to be invaded by the Russians and the Cubans, they wouldn't be using cluster munitions. Knowing this, should the Wolverines use them? And you might pause and you might say, I don't understand. Am I stupid or are you? Different groups of high school students who have banded together to repel Cuban and Russian aggression said before this, before this dawning of the red, before this red dawn, they said that they wouldn't use them. And the question is, should the Wolverines, Wolverines, not use them? Wolverines! You think whoever posed that question was a bit daft. The official reasoning for allowing these weapons is that the Ukrainians need artillery and the U.S. is shipping so many two million rounds from what I've heard, rounds of non-cluster munitions, they are these stockpiles are being depleted. And the cluster munitions, many of them are fired from the same weapon systems. So this is all a way to ease the supply of the 155 millimeter shells. 
Okay. I think it's more likely, or maybe some of that's going on, but it definitely seems a way to make the Russians pay a price for waging a war that is itself a crime. And this whole area of concern seems to me to fall into the category of decision that will draw scrutiny, that will cause criticism, that will generate headlines, and that will prompt critiques from our allies. But as a decision for the president, I don't think it's a terribly hard one. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief cluster bomb accruement officer for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. Boys! I'm finished!